Ahoy Authors! You're listening to The Writership Podcast. I'm your host, Leslie Watts, a StoryGrid certified editor dedicated to helping you develop self-editing skills and write a better story. If you want to learn more about the podcast, read the show notes, and grab this week's editorial mission, visit writership.com slash podcast. Welcome to episode 136 of the Writership Podcast. Today, I'm talking about resolutions, the part of your scene and story that pulls it all together. This is the fifth in a series of episodes on scene elements to help you craft and evaluate scenes that work. A couple of announcements before we begin. I'm pleased to announce that Writership has been included on the Write Life's list of the 100 best websites for writers in 2019. I feel really honored to be included, and I hope you'll visit thewritelife.com to take advantage of the amazing collection of resources they have gathered there. That's thewritelife.com. Speaking of the website, I've begun a new series on the Captain's blog that you might want to check out. I focus on scene work, of course, here on the podcast, and writing a scene that works is a vital skill. But even if you execute solid scene after solid scene, your story still could leave readers feeling unsatisfied for several possible reasons, and they might not be able to tell you why. So to support your writing in 2019, the Captain's Blog will feature a new weekly series on story-level craft to help you focus on the big picture. To find out more, visit writership.com and select the Captain's Blog. Finally, if you could use some help staying accountable with your work in progress and a place to ask questions and celebrate your successes, consider joining the Writership Podcast Slack community. To find out more, visit writership.com slash slack. Okay, so resolutions today, and we have a quote from Robert McKee. He says, the resolution... The fifth of the five-part structure is any material left after the climax. Well, it's easy to imagine Mr. McKee, master screenwriter and author, with a cheeky smile on his face as he wrote that line. And it's true to a point, but thankfully he goes on to explain what your resolution should do and what it might contain. Of course, the general purpose of the resolution, whether it's in your scene or story, is to wrap things up. But we need to get more specific if we're going to write really effective resolutions. Now, they often get short shrift, but as Sean Coyne says, the resolution is crucial for the reader or viewer to fully metabolize the story. Now, I want to help you avoid the risk of an unmetabolized scene or story. So let's turn to today's submission from C. Gabriel Wright called Someone, an LGBTQ short love story of just under 2,800 words. Gabriel has crafted this lovely synopsis for us. You meet a boy. You fall in love with the boy. You tell your friend all about the boy. So big thanks to Gabriel for sharing someone with us. You've met someone, haven't you? Your friend says. You flag down the barista. 
No, well, yes, I have, but it's not like that. Tracy leans in, her elbows on the table. Do tell. And so you do. You got tired of feeling the weight of his attention on you every time you were in the cafe, which was a lot. So one day, you looked up and caught him staring at you from behind his curtain of greasy fringe. That was when you stood up, grabbed your coffee and your paperback book with the tattered pages and loose spine, and walked over to him. He sat at a table in the far corner, away from the entrance. His table. When he saw you coming toward him, maneuvering through the sparse late afternoon crowd of business suits, he jerked his head downward as if to hide. But dark, dingy yellow lights did little to hide him from you. He stuck out like a gay black Jew in a Klan rally. His knees started to bounce frantically. He wasn't cute, not in the traditional sense. His ensemble was unfortunate its motif misguided, and he used his hair to hide his face. Even as you sat down at his table and leaned over it, you couldn't make out the color of his eyes. He closed his journal and covered it with both hands, folding them one on top of the other. You gave him your name. He mumbled his. Seth, he said, and you immediately thought of snakes and Egyptian gods and that character in the story you want to write, the one about the demon child who turned out to be not a demon child at all, really. You engaged in a futile attempt to strike up a conversation, and he looked at you behind his fringe with a stare that reminded you of a dry erase board, brand new, fresh out of its packaging. And there you were without your markers. The next time you went to the cafe, Seth wasn't there, so you sat in the far corner away from the entrance. When he showed up, he made a beeline to his table without looking around. Halfway there, he realized you were sitting in his chair. You could tell it threw him off a bit, but he sat across from you without much fanfare. He kept his journal on his lap. I'm new, he told you. And you knew he didn't mean new to the city. Rather, he's new to the gay city, the glitterati, as you liked to call it. He still lived with his mother, worked at a job he hated, studied in a degree program that held little interest at a university that interested him even less. He seemed defeated and miserable, but an open sort of miserable, ready for something to happen to him, for someone to happen. You decided then to be that someone. When he complained about money and clothes and how it cost too much to be a part of the glitterati, you took him to the artsy part of town to a quaint shop that sold vintage clothes. This is where tomorrow's fashion gets its inspiration, you told him. And to prove your point, you bought some shirts and pants and jackets and vests from the vintage store, but not underwear or socks because that's disgusting. 
Then you took him uptown to the high-end stores and downtown to the boutiques, and you pulled shirts and pants and jackets and vests. They weren't exactly the same, but they were same enough so that Seth got your point. The next time you saw him, he was wearing one of the shirts you had bought for him. You invited him home one night, and though he stuttered his response, wide-eyed, he accepted the invitation. Not tonight, you said to him. Tomorrow. I'll make dinner. The postscript had settled his nerves a bit. When he showed up to your apartment on time, you noted, he was nervous, as expected. When he sat on your couch, his knee bounced furiously. The conversation turned to the new glitterati words du jour, heterosexism and heteronormality, and you listened to him as he chastised straight men, called their masculinity ridiculous. So you put on old kung fu movies and watched them. He remembered them growing up, and he relaxed. You watched the one about the old teacher, once a fabled sensei, but now a drunken outcast who takes in one last pupil, whose family had been murdered by the court of a corrupt emperor. What are they doing? you asked him about 20 minutes into the movie. He looked at you, then back at the television, then back at you. They're fighting, he said. Look again, you said. So he did. They're not fighting, you told him. They're dancing. It's all choreography. These guys aren't fighting. It's just made to look that way. Then you watched the World Wrestling Federation. Soap operas for men, you called it softcore porn, an ultimate fighting championship, bareback, condom-free, gay porn for straight guys. Seth laughed at that. But when the two ultimate fighters embraced, bloodied and battered and bruised and somehow freer, you knew he understood. Mom usually does all the cooking, he said during dinner and you learned that his mother was late in life when she had him. Now she was past retirement age. I'm all she's got, really, he told you. And you understood him to mean that she was all he had, too. That was when you noticed the color of his eyes, roasted chestnut brown. How sad, Tracy says. The barista sets down a glass of water and a demitasse of Turkish espresso, san pistachio grains, in front of Tracy. It's not sad, you say, nodding at the barista for more coffee. Why doesn't he just get his own place, she asks, and brings her cup to her lips so to blow across the coffee's surface. Her question makes you think but not about Seth, about her. You wonder if she could ever understand a life such as Seth's. She had a litter full of brothers and sisters and a freedom that Seth couldn't fathom. He stuck, living in some half-state with a woman, not her lover, but not quite her son anymore, either. 
No, she couldn't understand. So you try to lighten the mood. Get his own place. Are you mad? His taste in clothes was questionable at best. Could you imagine the furniture he'd pick out? One night, you and Seth stole up to the roof of the cafe. Lying side by side, you both listened to the cicadas sing in the distance as you stared up to the night sky. You breathed in the air of freshly cut lawns from the surrounding neighborhood, air heavy with the moist warning of a coming storm. He asked if you knew any of the constellations. You pointed out the obvious ones, the ones everyone knew. Leo, Orion, the Big Dipper. He asked if you thought there was life somewhere up there. You answered yes. Me too, he said, his knee brushed against yours. But they are so far away, you reminded him, and light can only travel so fast. Chances are they're already gone and their planet already dead. He pulled back. You couldn't hear from the thunderous silence, and after several moments you vowed never to talk about death or stars or supernovae around him again. You came home one evening to the message light on your answering machine, blinking a steady cadence of threes. One, your benefactors, they wanted to talk. Deleted. Two, a company you had sent your resume to. They wanted an interview with you tomorrow afternoon. Saved. Three, Seth. He wanted to skive off work tomorrow, wanted to stargaze again, this time in an open field, wanted to go look at foliage, change, and drink wine. You can be Charles, he said. I'll be Sebastian. So thanks again, Gabriel. This is a delightful story, and it feels very hopeful, which I personally appreciate in a love story. The framing device that you've used for this really works and it adds complexity um, with economy within this short story. So everything works really well together. Now you can't hear this from the way I read the submission, but in this piece, Gabriel hasn't used quotation marks except for the sections where the narrator is speaking with Tracy. And I think it really works. It kind of gives a, a flow as if perhaps the narrator is remembering these scenes and deciding how much to tell Tracy. So it's kind of an interesting way of presenting it. And there are some other innovations that I want to talk about um, coming up as we get into the resolution. Um, you probably noticed that this was written in second person point of view again for the these are in the portions that do not involve tracy and i want to say a few words about that before we dive into resolutions and holly and i talked about second person point of view in episode 126 in the context of david austin's story all american now here like in david's story second person seems to be masquerading as first person and it's used in a way that the narrator seems to be encouraging the reader or listener 
to take a few steps in his shoes. So it's a very close and deep point of view. This is a choice that is rarely used and it can be irritating to the reader. But personally, I think it works really well here, just as um, Anne and I concluded in David's story. So if you're considering this point of view, I encourage you to check out episode 126, where Anne and I talk about the advantages and disadvantages of second person and offer some questions to help you evaluate your choice. Okay, so on with resolutions. Now I'm going to give you the, the big picture once again. The resolution is the last of the five commandments of storytelling. So before I get into the details about that, I want to give you a quick review of those commandments and how they're connected. Now, as I said last week, the com commandments is a term that can rub people the wrong way. But what we really mean is that these are principles of dramatic structure. They're described by Aristotle with elements further refined by people like Gustav Freytag, Robert McKee, and Sean Coyne. Of course, others as well. Now, Sean also made a connection to the Kubler-Ross change curve, which describes the steps people move through when they experience grief related to change. And although the theory as a whole has been criticized and, and debunked to a certain extent, I still think that it's a great mirror of story structure. So what does that mean? Well, stories are about change. And the five commandments give us a language to talk about story structure that mimics the way people metabolize change. So most stories open with the protagonist living their life, minding their own business, when an inciting incident comes along and upsets everything. The inciting incident causes a desire and goal to arise within the protagonist. As they pursue the goal, they encounter things that will help or hinder them, and we call those progressive complications. Then an unexpected event or turning point progressive complication occurs, which forces the protagonist into a dilemma, which we call the crisis question. The protagonist decides between the two options and acts on that decision in the climax. Then consequences flow from there in the resolution. So those are the basics of the five commandments of storytelling and kind of how they work together. Now they operate on the level of story, but also the smaller units within a story. So your subplots, acts, sequences, and most important for our discussion today, scenes. Now, as I said earlier, the resolution often gets short shrift as if it's a mere formality tacked onto the end of your scene or story with no real purpose. But I hope what I share with you today will convince you that that's simply not the case. Generally speaking, the climax, that is the decision and action, will answer not only the crisis question or that dilemma I talked about, but also the question posed by the inciting incident. If that question has not been answered, though, and is not meant to be an open question like we saw in last week's episode on the climax, then the resolution should really clear it up. One thing the resolution is not is a summary of what's come before. 
So if your resolution is restating what's just happened, it should illuminate the events, go deeper, and really show us what it means. Scene resolutions can show or demonstrate the following items regarding the characters and the story or the scene, depending on which level of story you're looking at. It can show us the result of the life value shift. It can show us how the events of the scene have changed the landscape of the story in a relevant way. It can give us a new status quo. You recall the inciting incident upsets the status quo. Well, this re- the resolution can show us the, the status quo for the next scene. It can also give us the consequences of the climactic action for the main character and the magnitude of those consequences. That is how that event reverberates beyond the main character to other characters and the world in which they exist. The implications of the dramatic action, of course, what it means for the main character and others and why it matters is really important purpose of resolutions, as well as the character's internal revelations, chief takeaways, or lessons learned. We can also find setups for and payoffs from other scenes, as well as reminders of facts that the reader needs to know. We sometimes will see the inciting incident, or at least a setup for the inciting incident of the next scene. Okay, so these are the things that the resolution can show. Now, let's look at what resolutions do for the reader, because that is your, the person that you are focusing on. Well, resolutions allow them to take stock and metabolize the action of the scene. Resolutions also help the reader to consider the contrast or the difference between the character's expectations before the climax and what actually happens. They also help us feel particular emotions related to the core emotion of the story. And they help the reader settle after a climax with intense emotions. So if we've, if they've been on the edge of their seat with the climax, sometimes you want to ease them into the next scene, and this is a great way to do it. So resolutions also allow the reader to reach conclusions, their own conclusions about the character, about what's happening, and um, to recalibrate everything they know about the story so far. Now, you won't need to include all of these items in every scene resolution or even necessarily in your story's resolution. But what I want to, why I want to give you all of these is to help you consider the possibilities and whether you're really getting the ringing, the most meaning from your scene's last hurrah. Okay, so now let's apply all of this to today's submission. And as usual, I'm going to start out by analyzing it. First, we look at the story event. And the first question in that regard is, what are the characters literally doing? Now, as I've explained before, this is just what they're doing on the surface. Now, there are two levels of story here. First, we have the framing story in which the narrator is talking to his friend in a cafe. 
right? And that frame provides the context for the other level of story in which the narrator has met and begun dating Seth. And actually, we see this summarized beautifully in Gabriel's synopsis, you meet a boy, you fall in love with the boy, you tell your friend all about the boy. So that's what's happening, literally, on the surface. Okay, second question is, what is the essence of what the characters are doing? Or what is their essential action? So this is what's happening beneath the surface. And keep in mind, I'm guessing based on the context, of course, for your own story, I hope you'll, you'll, you know, really grapple with this and try to get quite specific because you want to nail this down. It affects everything else that happens in the story. So within the framing story, the narrator's friend Tracy wants to hear his news about his new love interest. And it's not clear to me exactly what her reasons for that are, but she does seem genuinely interested in her friend's life. The narrator wants to tell Tracy about his love interest, probably because he's excited and wants to share it with her. But you can tell there's also some reservation. There's some perhaps he's not going to be able to explain it in such a way that she'll be able to understand. So he almost has a, um, like his purpose or his goal is almost, almost seems to be enlighten her, to enlighten her to his understanding of the relationship. Now in the love story that we have, the narrator wants to make a romantic connection with Seth but he also seems to want to put Seth at ease. And so the essential action there might be, you might combine the two to make it more specific. The third question we look at when we are doing a story event is what life value has changed for one or more of the characters in the scene. So in other words, which states or conditions have changed for the characters from the beginning to the end of the scene? Well, just as with the essential action, I'm guessing a bit from the context, but of course, knowing your own story, I want you to be very, very specific. So here the narrator goes from being a stranger to Seth to some level of knowing and understanding him. We might also say that the narrator goes from being alone to dating someone. More specifically, of course, the, the life value in a love story is a spectrum from love to hate. And here we could say the narrator moves from awareness, because we get the impression that the narrator has seen Seth around at the ca cafe before. So from awareness to attraction to dating. Now, again, if this is your story, you want to make those as specific as possible. But generally speaking, that's what I see is happening. Of course, dating on the love spectrum is something less than commitment. And commitment is the primary positive result of a full courtship love story. We don't get there necessarily by the end of the submission um, because in part it, it requires a proof of love act by both lovers. But we could easily imagine the narrator and Seth committing to each other in the future. Um, so it and with a short story, of course, this is total, this totally works. It doesn't have to be a full-blown love story. 
So some other values operating within the scene. From Seth's perspective, we might say he was not known or understood in the beginning, but is and feels understood by the end. With regard to the framing story, we might say that Tracy goes from being in the dark to being up to speed about the narrator's new love interest. Now, again, depending on the complexity of that relationship and what's really going on, you might want to be more specific. Another life shift that seems to be happening in this scene is that the narrator seems to be unaware or he hasn't, it hasn't dawned on him about some aspect of Tracy's privilege, that of being one of several siblings. Um, But by the end, he becomes enlightened about that. So he, he, you know, it's more than awareness, it seems to me. He makes a decision about it. He has a new understanding. Okay, so question four, which life value is most relevant to the global genre? What That's the primary genre, the one that, and this is the life value shift that if we were going to spreadsheet this, <laughs> this short story, that would be the value that goes into it. Well, the love story value seems to me to be the most important. And so I, I identified that as awareness to attraction to dating, but... It is also possible, because there's more than one way to read this, it is also possible that the experience with Tracy is the most important thing happening and that we aren't seeing fully how that resolves at the end. So that's another possibility. It depends on the writer's intention for um, what's, you know, for the story and what, what he sees as the primary story. So from this, this, we get, and this is much less artfully done than the synopsis that Gabriel shared with us, but I would say the narrator tells his friend about how he came to be dating Seth. Let's go on to the five commandments of the scene. And I want to say that I'm primarily first looking at what happens between the narrator and Seth. So um, I will get to the discussion about what's happening with Tracy after I go through this. Um, It's all very interesting. Um, There's a, a lovely innovative structure that I see within this scene. So what is the inciting incident? The narrator catches Seth looking at him. Okay, then what are the progressive complications and turning point? Well, Seth jerks his head down as if to hide. And then when the narrator tries to strike up a conversation with him, it just doesn't work out. Then the next time the narrator goes to the cafe, Seth is not there. So then I see the turning point as when Seth opens up and tells the narrator about himself, which is an action, the narrator reaches a conclusion or revelation that Seth is ready for something to happen to him, for someone to happen to him. So what is the crisis from that? That is the dilemma that comes from that turning point. Should the narrator choose to become that someone or not and it's hard to say again like we've talked about best bad choice and irreconcilable good choices before it depends on your perspective really 
Well, and we get explicitly the decision from the from the narrator as climax. He decides to be that someone, which is a really lovely way of putting that. So there's something now I want to look at. I want to turn to the resolution because in this scene, I think that the resolution really is everything that follows the decision of the climax. But what's really interesting and innovative to me is that we see a kind of seesaw structure between climax action and resolution. So in the first example of this, Seth complains about the expense of clothes required to be part of the glitterati. So then the narrator shows him vintage shops and buys him some clothes, which is a climactic action in my view. Then Seth wears one of the shirts the next time they're together. And to me, that feels like a resolution to that individual microclimactic action. Then Seth talks about the ridiculousness of heterosexual masculinity. So the narrator shows him a different side of it through the kung fu movies and wrestling, which I would identify climactic, climactic action. And then Seth gains a deeper understanding, which I would call the resolution. Seth tells the narrator about his home life with his mother, and the narrator listens and understands. And to me, that's climactic action. Then he can identify finally the color of Seth's eyes, which has eluded him before. And that feels like resolution. And a nice payoff for that detail that was included earlier. Finally, while on the roof of the cafe, Seth and the narrator are looking at the stars and their conversation drifts toward life and death, which causes Seth to pull back. And the conversation, it seems to me, is the climactic action. The resolution, in part, is Seth pulling back. But Seth calls the narrator and leaves a sweet message about getting together again, which is the final resolution of that. Okay, so that's how I see the primary love story unfolding. But in terms of the framing story, I think the inciting incident is Tracy asking the narrator if he's met someone. So he hesitates then and he says, mm, it's not like that, which to me, like I said before, it signals that there's something in the situation that will be difficult to explain to her. But he decides to try to explain it to her. And so I see that as his goal that comes out of the inciting incident. Now, some way into the conversation, Tracy reaches the conclusion about Seth's life that it's sad. And she suggests, why doesn't he just get a place of his own? And to me, that feels like a progressive complication. And the narrator feels like realizes rather she probably isn't going to understand it which feels like a revelatory turning point so he decides to lighten the mood and that to, to me feels like the climax of that or you know or the answer to a crisis question of do I keep trying to explain this to her or not 
Now, we don't see what unfolds from that point, though it might appear in the rest of the story. But to me, the resolution is implied that the narrator will continue to steer the subject away from Seth and his individual situation. So let's look at this resolution, the resolution that is for the primary love story, in light of the the items I identified earlier. So does this resolution show the result of a life value shift? Yes, it does. (laughs) It shows, I mean, whether we're talking about the love story or the framing story, there is, um, Seth and the narrator were romantically alone and now they are together. And then in terms of Tracy and that situation with the narrator, he goes from giving it a try hoping that she'll be able to kind of understand the whole situation to realizing that she really can't. So does it show how the events of the scene have changed the landscape in a relevant way? Absolutely. I mean, those two kind of go part and parcel together, but in a, in a story that has a lot more scenes, right? In a, in a novel, for example, you would want to look at does, not only does this shift the life value, but is it clear how it shifts the, the protagonist's chances of achieving their goal? Are they closer to or further from? Is it going to be a lot harder now or is it going to be easier? those kinds of questions. Now, the next question that we would want to ask, does this set up a new status quo? Absolutely. With both Seth and Tracy, we have a different status quo because the protagonist, the narrator, is in a different position relative to where he started. So he's starting at a different place with Tracy's, his relationship with Tracy and his relationship with Seth. And does it show the consequences for the main character as a result of the climactic action? Yes, definitely. Especially with Seth, what we have is that, you know, they are going to pursue a romantic relationship. And that is just lovely. And for Tracy, it's, you know, it's not as clear specifically how that relationship might change. um, But there is a change. And we kind of see that see that coming. And again, that might appear in the last bit of the story. Do we get the implications of the climactic action and what it means for the narrator and Seth, as well as why it matters? Definitely. You know, we see, I think in, um, in some ways, it seems really obvious. And it might be interesting also to look at another scene where it's not so clear, where the answers to these questions don't overlap so much. But I want you to, when you're reviewing your scenes, to look at them and, you know, look at each of these questions individually, because they could, there could be differences. Now, the last bit here is whether the character's internal revelations, chief takeaways, or lessons learned are apparent. Yes, the narrator and Seth are learning to navigate their relationship, but also the narrator seems to learn more about what he can share with Tracy. 
So then we want to look at, does this resolution allow the reader to take stock and metabolize the action in the scene? Remember, that's the thing I mentioned at the very beginning, and that's really important. And I think it does. It allows us to see this arc of these two men, uncertain, not sure whether they're going to pursue something, and then really coming together. And and again, even though we don't know exactly how the relationship with Tracy is going to go, we still see, yep, we can, we can clearly see the change that's happened. We can clearly understand what has occurred. So then does this allow us to contrast the character's expectations before the climax with what actually happens? And... It's what's really interesting to me is if you look at all the micro, um, the micro climax actions and resolutions that go back and forth, that you can see that individually, the expectation and the, and what really happens. And, and it's really powerful because they, they become more complicated, right? Like the first one is about clothing. That's a very practical thing. And they solve it. And then the next, um, the next issue is about masculinity. And what does that mean? And really struggling with, with those issues. And they resolve it. And that's a bigger issue, it seems to me, than clothes. But then when it, they come to the really you know, like that heavy piece about life and death and, and that discussion, the narrator, he like, he's willing to shut down and not discuss that anymore. But, and our expectation might be that Seth is not going, you know, that, 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 that would be Seth's preference, perhaps. But then we get this lovely bit of, of news via the, phone message where that's not the case, where Seth is willing to grow into those discussions and that level of intimacy, despite it's being really uncomfortable for him. The next question is whether we feel particular emotions related to the core emotion of the story. Well, the core emotion for a love story is romance and and do we feel that? We certainly do. I mean, it's the reference to Charles and Sebastian, um, which is which is an allusion to Brideshead Revisited. It is really lovely. And, and it, it does kind of conjure this feeling of romance, um, along with the other details that are mentioned in that message about looking at foliage change and drinking wine. So I think we definitely are experiencing the core emotion through this resolution. And then are we able to reach our own conclusions about the character? And I think we definitely do. There's enough in this, even though this is a very short story, there's enough in here that we can make our own decisions and we can feel hopeful about Seth and the narrator and the relationship, even if they don't, if even if they weren't to reach a level of commitment, that it would be 
like they would still both be better off for having had a relationship with one another. Okay, so I've gone through all of that analysis. We have a really solid resolution, of course, here. It ticks almost all of the boxes. The only ones it doesn't are the ones that aren't really, that don't really count or don't really apply in the context of this very short story. So what does that mean for this author? Like, what would my suggestions be for Gabriel? Well, I want to remind you, of course, that my suggestions always depend on whether I've read the scene the way that the writer intended. Um, the meaning of a scene is often in the eye of the reader, and particularly with this one, because I found as I was going through and doing my analysis that it could be read a couple of different ways. Um, I went with the way that seemed to make the most sense to me, but other people might receive it differently. So, and that's all valid. Now, if I've read it incorrectly, the writer may want to consider if their intention is making it onto the page. But always remember that I'm, I haven't read the entire story here, and no matter who is giving you feedback on your story, you want to consider it, but balance it with what you know about your intentions about the story you're trying to write. So in terms of structure, the story we have before us works as a scene. It's well executed. It leaves me curious to know what's in the last, um, I can't remember how many more words are left in the story. It might be about seven or eight hundred, something like that. But I'm really curious to know what happens then. If I had to pick one suggestion, what I would, what I would say is Consider fleshing out a bit of the framing story, especially if it was the intention for that to be the primary story, not the love story. So if you see it that way, then you might want to flesh it out a little bit. And here are some things that I think you might explore. Um, are the narrator and Tracy in the same cafe where, where the narrator meets Seth? That's really, that's a minor point, but just a question that came up as I was reading it. Um, then I want to ask about what's the nature of their relationship? How close are they? Have they been friends for a long time? Or is she more of a casual acquaintance? Because that gives us the context for whether he is surprised by her inability to understand Seth's position. Right? What does it mean in terms of their relationship in the future? And in terms of resolving that kind of open question? Now, these, all of these questions and more may be answered in the rest of the story. Um, or in the end, Gabriel might decide that it's just not necessary to add those details. They're superfluous. It's really, really about Seth and the narrator. But these are some questions that came to mind as I was reading the submission. So again, really lovely story, really well executed. And the resolution with the that seesaw action that I talked about is really lovely and I think innovative. So let's turn to the editorial mission. This is going to shock you. I want you to gather resolutions. As you read or watch stories, identify the resolutions that unfold after a character decides and acts on their dilemmas. Which resolution purposes are being met? So then be begin compiling a list of those situations from the stories and scenes that you read and watch to use as you plan, draft, and revise the scenes for your stories. 
Now, in the context of your own life, consider the resolutions that you've experienced. Look at both the immediate and long-range consequences of your major decisions and actions in your life. How did you perceive those events initially, and did that change over time? Because that will help you with point of view. So keep a list of your personal resolutions along with your dilemmas, decisions, and actions from the Crisis Climax missions. Then, as a regular exercise, write about them. Your reactions and emotions in the context of the, of the resolutions of life events can inform what your characters think, say, and do in analogous circumstances. And as I've said before, this is what's really behind the advice to write what you know. So that will do it for this episode. And as we wrap things up, I offer deep gratitude to C. Gabriel Wright for sharing someone with us. And of course, to our Patreon crew for supporting the podcast. If you enjoy the show and would like to show your support, visit patreon.com slash writership, where you can get access to monthly Q&A calls and deep scene dive calls for the cost of one or two cups of coffee a month. If you'd like to show your support in other ways, tell a writing friend about the podcast or leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. If you'd like to have your scene critiqued on the podcast, visit writership.com submissions. And I'm a little behind on the submissions that have come in recently, but uh, you will be hearing from me soon if you have sent them in. That's it for episode 136. We'll see you next time on the Writership Podcast. Music